Well, good morning, podcasters from a sunny Dorset. Welcome to our summer bumper edition of the Banking Litigation Podcast. And kicking off uh, this month, uh, I'm joined uh, by, as ever, uh, Alice from Behind the Glass. Good morning, Alice. Getting a wave. Uh, my co-host, Kerry. Good morning, Kerry. Morning, John. And our special guest speaker this morning, an associate from our banking litigation team, Catherine Bagg. Good morning and welcome, Catherine. Morning, John. So this week, um, picking up the same uh, theme as last month, uh, a bit more on um, contractual construction. Uh, Kerry, do you want to open the first case? It's a bit of a flavour running through cases over the last few months. Yes, certainly. So this this is the case of Umrish and Gill, uh, which centres on the enforceability of personal guarantees. And this case, um, here we had a chairman who was the sole shareholder of a company who signed various uh, personal guarantees in relation to uh, the loans made to his company. So we won't dwell too much on the facts. Uh, the key takeaway I just wanted to highlight is that although the defendant tried to wriggle out of his obligations under the personal guarantees, the court was willing to take a robust approach and found that they were, in fact, enforceable. I mean, I've seen various, uh, very often quite inventive attempts to avoid enforcement under personal guarantees. I'm, I'm guessing that's just going to increase with the COVID litigation. Do you have any particular interesting arguments uh, to highlight for our audience? Yeah, indeed. So um, the defendant relied on alleged assurances that had been given by the lender. And these were to the effect that the guarantees would give comfort and be used as a sleeping pill. The defendant argued that the doctrine of promissory estoppel, um, and he relied on that saying that these assurances meant that the lenders couldn't rely upon the personal guarantees. But this did not hold much sway with the court. The court said that the statements were not sufficiently clear and unequivocal to engage the doctrine of promissory estoppel and held the lenders were entitled to claim under the guarantees. Now, Kerry, I touched on COVID already, but I know you will have given some thought to how this decision will be welcomed by banks in particular in the context of COVID. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, of course. So um, I think this decision will be particularly interesting for accredited lenders under the coronavirus uh, business interruption loan schemes. Uh, under these schemes, banks are permitted and in fact, in some cases expected to take security or personal guarantees for large facilities to cover the risk of default on the portion that's not guaranteed by the government. So it's reassuring to see that the court has here taken a robust approach to these sorts of mechanisms. Thank you for that, Kerry. I, I believe there's a blog post in the show notes on that particular case. Yeah, indeed. Okay, many thanks. Well, switching gears now for our deep dive this month, uh, which I will take, um, a case here again of contractual interpretation, but um, it's the good ship common law uh, meeting the uh, US sanctions rocks, um, the, in particular the US secondary sanctions regime on the performance of an English law facility agreement. The case is a Court of Appeal decision, uh, Lamisa against Synergy Bank. Some of you may be familiar uh, with the first instance decision. It considered a borrower's contractual obligation to make payment under a facility agreement in circumstances where the agreement had, and this is important, nothing whatsoever to do with the United States and where the parties were not based in the United States, but where the borrower would face the risk of US secondary sanctions if it went ahead and made the payment. 
and the Court of Appeal confirmed that the borrower could indeed, on that basis, withhold payment. That's a pretty striking example of the extraterritorial reach of US law. Yes, indeed. Yes, Kerry. Uh, so I'll put this into some context with the facts of the case. So the claimant uh, was a lender, a Cypriot company, and it entered into a facility agreement with the defendant borrower, which was English. And you can see what I'm saying, neither party has anything to do with the United States. And the facility agreement was uh, English law governed. The following year, the UBO of the lender was placed on a list of specially designated nationals by the United States. And the effect of this was that the lender became a blocked person under that regime. Uh, and under the US-Russian sanctions, any counterparty that knowingly facilitated a significant transaction with the lender could be subjected to secondary sanctions under US law. So this presented, I suppose, a theoretical risk to the borrower's business, which used a correspondent bank account in the United States. And the question for the court revolved around a particular clause in the facility agreement and whether or not it meant that the borrower could withhold payment in the circumstances. I'll put some flesh in this. I'll, I'll read the clause out. It's 9.1 um, for those of you um, who are interested. And it, it, it states that the borrower would not be in default if the reason for the payment not being made was, quote, in order to comply with any mandatory provision of law, regulation or order of any court of competent jurisdiction. So the question that the court was faced with was whether the secondary sanctions under US law were, to use the wording from the clause, mandatory provisions of law. And are secondary sanctions imposed automatically by the US if the circumstances mean they've been triggered? I can see where you're going with the question, Catherine. Uh, no, uh, interestingly, secondary sanctions are imposed on a discretionary basis under US law. But nonetheless, both the High Court and the Court of Appeal agreed that secondary sanctions amounted to, to use the term, a mandatory provision of law with which compliance was required. Now, John, we covered both decisions on the banking litigation blog. And the High Court really saw this as a contractual interpretation case that was limited to its specific background facts. Can you talk us through the key ways in which the approach by the Court of Appeal differed? Yes, of course, gladly. Uh, unlike the first instance decision, the Court of Appeal emphasised that the relevant clause was a standard term and that the factual background had a much more limited, if any, role to play, it, play in the interpretation. Um, you might have your own views on that, but in any event, um, the key point is rather than concentrating on the specific intentions of the parties, which is what happened at first instance, the Court of Appeal looked at, at the more general context of agreements for the provision of Tier 2 capital within the EU, which was the borrower's purpose for the funds in this particular case. For agreements of this type, the Court thought that the result effectively balanced the competing interests of the lender to be paid timidly against the borrower's ability to delay in making payment where it would be illegal and affect the borrower's ability to conduct its ordinary business. So could the result in the Court of Appeal have wider implications than it first seemed from the High Court decision? Well, yes, hence my sotto voce point, um, at least for the interpretation of similar clauses and similar agreements. I think from a drafting perspective, it really does emphasise the need for parties to think about the potential impact of extraterritorial sanctions regimes and to include a clear contractual allocation of risk. It's not ideal, to be honest, in this type of scenario to be arguing over a standard form clause. 
But look, it's interesting. It may be confined to its facts, but um, as ever, there's a, a link um, uh, to the blog post in the show notes, and I'd urge you to have a look at it. Okay, uh, moving on from contractual construction now to the ever-evolving world of legal privilege. Um, Catherine, you're going to talk us through two, I think, new and interesting cases. Yeah, thanks, John. I'll start with the case of A&B, which was a High Court decision on the question of privilege in a regulatory context. There have been a few interesting decisions looking at this aspect of privilege recently. I enjoyed your podcast coverage of the Court of Appeals decision in Sports Direct and FRC earlier this year. Thank you, Catherine. That was in April, I believe, our first podcast in lockdown. Yeah, well, this is the latest instalment of cases on this theme. So as a reminder, this is where we are looking at compulsory disclosure of documents by a regulated person to a regulator, and whether or not those documents can be withheld on the grounds of privilege. In A and B, the context was a regulatory investigation by the Financial Reporting Council, or FRC, into an auditor. And here, the FRC issued a document compulsion notice to the auditor, seeking documents ultimately belonging to the auditor's client. And this is where it gets interesting and a bit tricky. The client claimed that the documents were privileged and should not be handed over to the FRC, but the auditor did not agree with its client that privilege applied. So the issue for the court was, who has to make the decision about whether the documents attract privilege in this kind of scenario, the regulated person, i.e. the auditor, or the client? And here, the court held that the auditor had to form its own view on whether documents were privileged, regardless of who the privilege belonged to. This was because the duty to disclose was on the auditor, so the auditor had to make its own independent assessment of whether privilege applied. It was insufficient to simply say that the client had asserted privilege. So, Catherine, obviously the case involves the FRC and an investigation into an auditor, but can you tell us a bit more about how the read across to a financial services context works? Yeah, of course. Uh, so in the context of the FCA's powers to compel a regulated person to disclose documents, the question would be whether the client's documents are protected items under Section 413 of FISMA. Applying the A and B decision in this context, it means that the regulated person will need to be the one to make the call on whether the documents fall under the Section 413 exemption it would not be enough to refuse to produce documents on the grounds that a claim to privilege has been or could be asserted by a client. Well, thank you for that, Catherine. Um, again, a, a link in the show notes to our blog post. Um, but staying on the theme of privilege, uh, it may be a little early for the fruit harvest, albeit there's lots of combines on the road down here. Uh, but here we're talking about cherry picking, uh, I believe. Is that right? Very seasonal. <laughs> Yes, that's right. The second case I have is PCP and Barclays, which, as you say, is about the cherry picking rule, otherwise known as the principle of collateral waiver. I think I prefer cherry picking. And um, for the benefit of the audience, can you tell us, uh, just remind us what the principle is? <laughs> yep. The cherry picking rule says that a party who relies on privileged material to support its claim may be required to disclose other privileged material relating to the same issue or transaction. It essentially makes sure that the court gets to see the whole picture and avoid the potential unfairness of a party picking and choosing the best otherwise privileged material to support its case. And hence a cherry-picking analogy. Yeah, precisely. So I'll start off with a brief bit of factual background on this one. 
The underlying claim, of course, relates to the defendant bank's capital raisings following the 2008 financial crisis. Prior to the civil action between the bank and PCP, the SFO brought criminal charges against the bank and certain of its senior executives. As most of our listeners will know, the charges against the bank were ultimately dismissed and the senior executives acquitted. However, as part of the criminal investigation, the bank provided certain documents to the SFO under a limited waiver of privilege. In particular, advice received by the bank from its lawyers that certain transactions were lawful and not a sham. These documents were then relied on by the SFO in the context of criminal proceedings. The civil proceedings then came along and the bank relied on those same documents in its witness statements and opening statement at trial. And considering the question of waiver, the court took a very expansive view and said that the references to the contemporaneous legal advice meant there had been a broad waiver privilege over all communications with the lawyers relating to the transactions in question. So the the fact that the documents had lost their privilege before they were deployed in the civil proceedings, that didn't matter? Yeah, exactly. The court rejected the bank's argument to that effect. And this could lead to a slightly odd situation for financial institutions. It might be that privileged documents are put in the public domain through criminal or regulatory investigations, but that these documents cannot be relied on by the bank in follow-on civil proceedings because of the risk that this would waive privilege in a broader set of privileged communications. A surprisingly broad interpretation of the rule there, Catherine, and something that perhaps our podcasters would like to consider. Uh, We have a show uh, note link as ever if you'd like to read further detail. And now, uh, moving away from privilege, I have a very short update hot off the press from the Supreme Court uh, on the subject of reflective loss. Uh, And podcasters, I'm sure you'll have seen that the Supreme Court has handed down a long-awaited judgment in uh, Sevilla and Marex, forgive my pronunciation, uh, on the principle. The the headline news is that by a majority of four to three, the Supreme Court has confirmed that the reflective loss of rule applies to companies and shareholders, but not to creditors. And on that basis, the claim by Marex, who's a creditor, was not barred by the reflective loss principle. We just wanted to give you a headline uh, on it just now. We'll we'll be covering the decision uh, more fully next month. So do tune in for that. And if you can't wait until then, uh, please do take a look at our blog post on the decision. And finally, from the judiciary to the executive, let's move on to the latest announcement from the government on LIBOR, Kerry's favourite topic. Uh, Over to you, Kerry. Can you tell us a bit more? Yeah, thanks, John. So, yes, indeed, the government has announced its intention to introduce a legislative fix for so-called tough legacy LIBOR-linked products. By this, we mean contracts which reference LIBOR as the interest rate but cannot be amended before the benchmark disappears at the end of 2021 uh, or where the fallbacks to LIBOR that are incorporated into the relevant contract won't work. So the government's plan is to grant regulatory powers to the FCA so that the regulator can change the methodology for calculating LIBOR. So this means that the contracts will still say LIBOR, but LIBOR will mean something different to what it means now, i.e. panel bank submissions. Um, So for the UK market, this legislative LIBOR is likely to be calculated as SONIA plus a fixed spread adjustment to account for the difference between LIBOR and SONIA, because SONIA is inherently lower than LIBOR. 
But this is going to be a blunt tool and we expect it will provide fertile ground for disputes. And what sort of claims do you think we'll see arising out of this? I can certainly see mis-selling claims. So if the customer loses out under legislative LIBOR by paying more interest, they might claim that they should have been sold a Sonia-linked product rather than one referencing LIBOR in the first place. Or even the opposite scenario where a contract was actively switched away, so properly amended from LIBOR, but the customer would have been better off, in fact, under legislative LIBOR. The overall message is that the legislative solution raises a number of significant risks and contracting parties would be unwise to take their foot off the pedal of transition efforts. We're watching LIBOR developments very closely, so please do read our blog post on this development and um, continuing for further details. Thank you, Kerry. The saga does roll on. Um, well, Luke, that, that's all uh, we have time for this month. I mean, no matter how many of these we do, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that we keep coming back to the basics of contractual interpretation, privilege, and this month's reflective loss. I, I, I certainly find it interesting, and I hope our podcasters continue to as well. But look, thank you very much to our guest speaker, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine, and do come again. Thank you to my co-host, Kerry, um, for a beautifully presented show as always, and to Alice for uh, making it all happen behind the glass. Thank you very much from me. Have a lovely summer, and we'll speak to you again very shortly.